Hey, it's Flaves, and this is Climate Changers, a podcast where we celebrate the heroes who are on the front lines of creating a new and sustainable resource and energy economy. Today, my guest is Leslie Chang, Director of Strategy and Policy at Calix Corporation. Hi, Leslie. Welcome to the show. Hey, Ryan. It's good to be here. So what role do you see solar energy playing in our global energy transition? Solar is one of those technologies that have been around for a really long time, but is really getting a new resurgence. So most people have heard of solar, and there's been a lot of buzz recently about hydrogen and direct air capture, but solar, I think, is one of those technologies that can be easily deployable, right? We're not building new infrastructure for it. We already know how it works. It is fairly ubiquitous. Once you develop something, you can easily deploy it at scale. And it's fairly cheap. We know how this technology works. So for me, looking ahead, I really think that solar, as prices continue to plummet for consumers, solar is going to be, I think, the leading technology for communities as we go out and think about how to continue to modernize our grid and as we continue to turn our grid even more green. I think solar is going to play the biggest role for communities because it's a proven technology. It already works and it's something that you really can put on any household. And with that as context, what are perovskite solar cells and what makes them different? So perovskite solar cells it's what Kalex is working on. And so if you think about a, a regular solar panel in, in a slightly you know simplified format, it's glass, it's the solar cell, and then it's the bottom glass. And the solar cell is what converts sunlight into electricity. And for the last, I would say, decade or so, the majority of solar cells have been made from crystalline silicon. And Increasingly, this has become a little bit of a challenge for the United States, at least, because most of the crystalline silicon supply in the world comes from China. And up until recently, this was something that worked for domestic markets. We were happy to purchase from China. China was happy to sell to us ever since the pandemic. And I think, you know, recent geopolitical issues, this has become a little bit of a sore spot for both countries. The United States wants to be able to create its own supply of solar cells. And the Chinese market is starting to think about how to supply to its own people and how to think about other countries. So what perovskite solar cells are, and this is what Kalex makes, it's a chemical formulation that we create in our lab that we coat that top glass with to turn that into a second solar cell. So perovskites are a chemical formulation that we create in-house and it's a kind of a unique chemical and nanomaterial qualities allow us to turn flexible pieces of substrate into solar cells. And so right now, we're coating pieces of glass with it to turn it into solar cells. You can also think about coating pieces of plastic, for example, flexible material. It's something that's really unique, and it has applications really far beyond the terrestrial photovoltaic market. So while we're thinking about coating solar panels right now, you can think about using it as something to coat the top of Tesla moonroofs, for example. So you can turn that automobile into something that can generate solar. 
And could you talk a little bit about how your unique products can help accelerate the adoption of solar technology? Well, what's really unique about Profskites is that in the way our business model is, is that if you're thinking about, again, that uh, simplified solar panel of top glass, solar cell, bottom glass, what our business model is right now is that we're working with essentially any solar manufacturer in the United States, because what we're saying is we're an additive, right? So we can help current solar manufacturers increase the power production of their product. So if we're thinking about the solar panel like a sandwich, so we have the glasses, Wonder Bread, the um, silicon solar cell is, let's say, peanut butter, and that bottom glass is Wonder Bread. What we're doing is we're turning that top piece of Wonder Bread into, say, like Ezekiel superseded bread. So now you have two pieces of that overall stack that's converting sunlight into electricity. So the value proposition is that as we're working with existing solar panel manufacturers, they can effectively go to market with a product that has two solar cells on it. And so that's a more powerful solar for generally a lower cost and lower output overall, because we're still working with existing supply chain, existing manufacturing processes. And so as we're thinking about accelerating the green energy revolution in the United States, what we're saying is, well, we can make all solar powers immediately 30% more powerful. And so that's helpful down the value chain, first for manufacturers, because they can sell their product for a little bit more money, right? Because it's generating a little bit more energy. They're selling it downstream. Consumers, let's say I want to put solar panels on my house. If I previously had to purchase 10 solar panels, now with this more powerful product, maybe I only have to purchase seven or eight. And so that's a lower cost for the consumer, uh, both from the perspective of purchasing the product and also installation costs. Because now the same person who's taking several hours to work on my house is installing fewer solar panels and can then work on more houses in a day. So there's a lot of cost savings that we can realize down the value chain just with this one product. And if you're thinking about on a macro scale, let's say we're deploying this at the commercial level or at the utility level. So we can install the same number of solar panels, right, and get 30% more power overall. Or we can install a fewer number and get the same you would have once had if you only had a silicon solar panel. So we're really realizing and unlocking both cost savings, power generation, and also land use considerations with this one product. So what is a tunable band gap and how does the band gap of perovskite cells maximize the absorption of solar energy? Mm, okay, this is a very technical but good question. So if we're thinking about the visible light spectrum, when we're working with silicon, silicon absorbs the lower energy light. So if we're thinking about a rainbow, right? Like what refracts through a prism, silicon captures red light. What perovskites do and how we've kind of maximized our accumulation in the lab is that perovskite captures higher energy light or more of that blue light at the other end of the spectrum. So the way the product works is if, you're, if we have a silicon solar cell, it's capturing the lower end of the light spectrum. We layer that with perovskites, which then captures the other half. You're then effectively using 
one piece of solar panel to capture both ends of that visible light spectrum. So that's exactly how this product works. That's why we're able to generate more energy within the same stack because the properties of perovskites are inherently different than the properties of silicon. When you put that together, it's essentially adding two pieces of the puzzle piece together in to make one kind of supercharged solar panel. And what challenges do you face making perovskite cells mainstream and how can these challenges be overcome? This is also a good question. Uh, the industry for perovskites, it's been around for about, I want to say about 10 years. Most of our competitors are in a similar place as us, where we're looking to commercialize, we're looking to build out our pilot factory and really just test whether or not this can work at scale. Perovskites, they're a tricky material to work with because they're a little bit quantum, right? Working with photons is always a little bit tricky. And what we've found over the last couple of years is that perovskites are sensitive to both water and UV radiation. And so when we were working on planet Earth, right, there's an abundance of water, right? There's an abundance of UV radiation. And one of the things that we're kind of constantly thinking about is how do we improve the efficiency and the durability of our products so that they can last, you know, 25, 30 years in the field. The reason silicon is so ubiquitous within the solar market is that it's really a material that has been built to withstand a lot of the elements. So we know that silicon can handle being out in the field for 25 years. We have data. We know how it responds to different weather patterns. We don't quite have that same data for perovskites yet because it's so new, right? So we're having to do a lot of testing and stress tests to try to figure out, you know, how do we mimic the way perovskites will perform 20 years into the future without knowing, without having that data, right? Simply because the industry hasn't been around for that long. So we have 10 years of hard data, but we don't have 25 years of hard data. So I think one, working on making sure that we're improving the quality and the durability of this product, this has been a main challenge. The second challenge is, I alluded to this at the beginning when I said solar has been around for a really long time. But most of public consciousness has been focused on hydrogen and direct air capture because it's new, right? People like new things. People like shiny things. And sometimes the easiest and quickest solution might be right in front of us. But people like thinking about chasing the next frontier. And for solar professionals in the field, we really believe that solar is this next frontier because it is all of those things I mentioned earlier. It's easy to deploy. It's easy to scale. It's cheap to manufacture. And all of these things make solar the ideal candidate to really deploy at scale and accelerate our push to 100% renewable energy. But sometimes consumer behavior wants to go for that new thing. And so there's a lot of behavioral changes that we as even manufacturers are trying to push forward on so that we can educate the public about what exactly it means to be a conscious consumer and what exactly it means to be part of this green revolution. Like solar is very easily within our grasp. And we want to be able to convince investors that all of the things that we have to decarbonize are right here in front of us. We don't really need to invest money into R&D, into new technologies. Solar can be that new technology to kind of usher us into the next stage of green living. 
And what role can government incentives play in the commercialization of your cells? Oh, government has been playing a huge, huge role. And I think it will continue to play a big role. Of course, we're not China, right? We're not a command economy. So we'll never have big, sweeping, draconian industrial policies around the way we manufacture things. But the Biden administration, with the Inflation Reduction Act, with the Infrastructure and Jobs Act, has really created an environment where not only investors, but also manufacturers can come to the table to say, hey, let's work on creating new factories. Let's think about how to bring domestic manufacturing back to the United States again. And I think this is a conversation that the government has been framing very, very well. For us as a company, we wouldn't have been able to expand and build out our factory if it wasn't for the Inflation Reduction Act. And so the role that government plays, I think, is really setting a vision, right, and working with the private sector to say, hey, we want to reimagine what the green economy in the United States will look like in, say, 2030, right? This is how we're imagining the grid. This is how we're imagining imagining each state plugging in. We really want to think about what it means to have well-paying jobs that are creating a middle class again. This is something that we haven't had, I think, since really since like the, the 20th century. I mean, between aerospace manufacturing and the automobile industry in the United States. I mean, again, this is a muscle that we have that we haven't worked in a long time. And I think the federal government is really starting to say again, hey, like America can be a global superpower for manufacturing, but we need the private sector to come along with us. And we have these great investment and production tax credits now that will allow both investors and manufacturers to say, yeah, well, you know, we're going to invest in this space because it's profitable to do so. And we have the resources necessary to train up a workforce that can actually build all of these things right here in the United States. So for me, the federal government is, one, doing that vision setting, but also, two, making sure that there are good supply-side policies to ensure that as we're manufacturing, we can be competitive against China or India and making sure we have policies in place to incentivize continued investment and innovation in this area. I think the Biden administration has been doing a really great job. We're certainly taking advantage of all the investment and production tax credits that are out there. It's been a huge boon to Kalux. And we're looking forward to continuing working with the government at the local level now, right? State level and the city level on implementation now that we have this broad array of federal policies in place. And the cities have been very responsive to what we're trying to build here. So I've been very appreciative of what we've been seeing from the federal administration and also at the local level as well. But I think it also takes a good private sector partner to say, you know, this is what we want to build and this is how we want to work with you. So it's definitely a two-way street. As we look at how this energy transition will transform the global economy, how can we ensure that it's inclusive? Great question. I'll use a, a slightly different industry right now, the uh, EV industry, as an example of perhaps what not to do. Because I think the main criticism right now is that while electric vehicles are proliferating 
the way that the charging stations have been laid out has not necessarily been conducive to all members of society. So right now, the cost, while the cost for EVs has been gradually coming down, the federal administration and also state governments have been pushing for tax credits for individuals purchasing cars. It's really difficult sometimes to find a charging station depending on where you live. So within Los Angeles, for example, if you live in South Central, there are not a lot of options close by for electric vehicle charging stations. So as much as an individual or family might want one, the infrastructure isn't quite there yet to promote widespread adoption. And I think this is something that companies are working on, but it's certainly something that could have been mitigated from the outset. And so when we think about solar, again, it's thinking about how are we strategic with our long-term planning such that we can ensure equity and justice are built into the way we're deploying these technologies? So the price for solar has been rapidly declining. I think these are kind of talking points that everybody knows about. But when you actually go out and say like, okay, well, I want to put solar panels on my house, it has still been really expensive. It can easily go upwards of $10,000. And so for us as a company, and I think for, for all companies, it's continuing to think about how are we making this not only accessible in terms of price, but also ubiquitous in terms of deployment. So how are we making sure that communities who are most in need, right, have the highest electricity bills, are the most prone to natural disasters, are the most prone to needing some sort of off-grid or distributed energy management system are getting it. And I think that's, again, a little bit of a dance with governments, right? I think it is both a private sector responsibility and a public sector one. And for me, it's thinking about critical public-private partnerships so that companies like Kalux can work to provide this energy while, you know, local governments can secure a certain volume offtake so that, you know, there's an agreement on both sides and companies can continue to supply this energy to its consumers while also working with local government to make sure that a portion of this is allocated to communities that really need it. For me, it's really thinking about being intentional with what our mission and vision is. At Kalux, we're trying to make solar more affordable at a lower cost, but our kind of overall driver is mitigating the effects of climate change. So we're being very intentional with who we're working with because we want to make sure that at the end of the day, we are working with the communities that are impacted the most by climate change. And what makes you optimistic about the future? I really think it's people, like humanity overall. Several years ago, climate change was not a fringe topic of discussion, but it was almost never talked about in kind of mainstream media the way it is now. The way media outlets have been talking about climate and broadcasting about it has changed I see the way the federal administration is talking about not only how are we creating this green economy, thinking both about how are we tackling the effects of climate change, but also economy. How are we making sure that we're building a system that is inclusive of all, right? Where people of all ages, of all education backgrounds can find a well-paying job within a green company, thinking about all of these things. And 
we do a lot of job fairs and we, we talk to a lot of students and just hearing from students themselves about how they're really interested in a career that will make a difference. I mean, it's such a big shift, I think, from even 10 years ago where, you know, you might go to trade shows and people wouldn't be talking about circular economy. People wouldn't be thinking about climate change, right? It was so much more focused just on the technology. And now the conversation is a lot more holistic. People are thinking about kind of all the different aspects of the world we live in and the communities that we work with and, you know, what individuals want and the way that we're starting to talk about all of this, I think gives me a lot of hope that people are thinking about how to build a better future and people realize that it's, you know, it's an active process, right? Things are not simply going to get better on its own, right? We all have to be part of creating this new future, given the current context and the reality that we live in. And I think increasingly people are realizing that that's the case and people aren't shying away from it. People are saying, yeah, I want to be a part of building this out. I want to be a part of reimagining this future. So that gives me a lot of hope. That gives me a lot of hope. And the fact that it's not just, right, the younger generation with the students, it's not just them. It's it's people kind of from all over thinking about how do I build a life that I can be proud of? How do I take on a job that's doing good for the world? And where are these jobs? And, you know, how do I make sure that even as a company, we're doing good for the community? I mean, we're, we're a private company, we have shareholders, but even our board of directors is very focused on making sure that we are a critical part of the local community and that we're hiring locals. So I'm really seeing kind of a big shift across, I think, all different kind of stakeholders in the community. And just that alone gives me a lot of hope that we're heading in the right direction. Leslie, thank you for your work to revolutionize the energy landscape with innovative solar power. And thank you for joining this episode of Climate Changers. Thanks so much, Ryan. It was great to talk to you. Every episode of Climate Changers has a call to action posted in the show notes. Each call to action has been curated to make it easy for you to help create the changes that we discussed today. Thank you for joining Climate Changers. Until next time.